And just before we get into this month's episode, I realise many of you subscribe to Simulcast via iTunes, but just a reminder that you can go to the website www.simulationpodcast.com because that's where the fabulous summaries are, where the discussion goes on and where all the other Simulcast resources are. So go have a visit of the website as well as continuing to subscribe on iTunes. So welcome to our next episode of Simulcast Journal Club podcast, and I'm joined again by Ben Simon for our wrap of last month's paper and some of the things that are bubbling up in the simulation literature. Hello, Ben. G'day. How are you going? So with that, Ben, I'll invite you to summarise for us the paper that we looked at in March and some of the discussion around it and our expert commentary. Yeah, fantastic. So uh, the article that we talked about this month was entitled Helping Experts and Expert Teams Perform Under Duress and an Agenda for Cognitive Aid Research. And it's an editorial by Stuart Marshall, which was first published in Anesthesia in November 2016. And in the article, Stuart really provides a very compelling overview on cognitive aids and particularly the research behind them. And then he maps out where that research should go next. So he starts by establishing current positive evidence for cognitive aids in emergency situations. And he argues that in studies where cognitive aid use hasn't actually improved clinical care, he thinks that this is more likely related to education on use of the tool or poor design of the tool itself, rather than cognitive aids in general being flawed by nature. And he then, go, then examines current knowledge gaps and issues in cognitive aid research, including uh, things like that clinical uptake of cognitive aids is far less than we'd anticipate, uh, which makes investigation into the barriers against them really important. He discusses the importance of orientation to the tool itself. And really, uh, it was a recurring theme on the importance of simplicity of design for a tool to be used in stress. Uh, and that theme came up a lot in the discussions as well. The article then provides some strategies to streamline cognitive aid design using examples from the development of the COVER ABCD acronym and the ANZ, ANZAAG anaphylaxis cognitive aid. And there's a lot of really practical, pragmatic points that come out throughout the editorial that are really useful for all of us, uh, particularly regarding the implementation of cognitive aids in the workplace, including things like uh, where to locate them, you know, keeping them closely related to nearby required equipment rather than plastering the wall with lots of posters. Uh, he talks about the pros and cons of using smartphones as a cognitive aid storage device and how to access them and also standardize them. Uh, he talks about uh, the fact that uh, there's a lot of improved function with linear cognitive aids rather than designing a big branching algorithm. Um, and then discusses what I found was really interesting was the existence, the existence of a validated cognitive aid in uh, medicine assessment tool, uh, which I had no idea uh, was around and was a really good read in and of itself. And then he finally uh, ends with a, a set of principles for future cognitive aid research in table three of the article, which I found, again, a particularly useful read that would be easy to skim over. Uh, but it's, it really highlighted a lot of interesting stuff about future research um, and kind of had some recurrent themes, not just for researching cognitive aids per se, but also simulation research in general. Uh, so he brought up tips like research into cognitive aid use should target experienced practitioners and their performance, that learning effects should be minimized and accounted for by study design, which I think is something that we struggle with in simulation um, research in general, and that familiarization and education with the cognitive aid must be undertaken before testing. 
Yeah, and I think for me, this paper just takes the whole thinking about checklists to another level. And I think that's what it did for me, really. It just opened my eyes about this idea that you can actually investigate this at another level than just that gut feel of, oh, this is a good checklist, this isn't. And it reminds me of the CDC has a checklist for developing checklists. Mm. So a few different levels on which you can interpret some of these issues. So what did our uh, discussants have to say over the month? Yeah, so we had a great discussion as usual. Um, the discussion online kind of mostly varied between responses to the article itself and then some general reflections and anecdotes regarding cognitive aid design and implementation. And I think if I had to summarise this discussion into three main points, I'd probably go with uh, one, that there was strong consensus that cognitive aid design is particularly vulnerable to death by committee, or as Ian Summers put it, the Homer Simpson car conundrum. Uh, there was some appreciation of the article's advice regarding cognitive aid design and implementation. And then thirdly, uh, we had a little bit of debate uh, regarding cognitive aid use uh, in critical emergencies versus routine situations. And there were some advocates that, who felt that cognitive aids were actually more useful in kind of non-crises when uh, Stuart certainly was strongly arguing that what they're designed from what they should be used in is really those critical emergencies were already at peak cognitive bandwidth. Um, in terms of exploring those a little bit more, I, I really liked Ian's kind of analogy of the Homer Simpson car problem. Have you seen that episode, Britt and Vic? No, I haven't, and I've seen most of them. <laughs> yeah. So Homer uh, finds out he has a long-lost brother who runs a car company, uh, and he ends up being blessed with this opportunity to design a car, and then he crams it with every single possible feature you could possibly think of, and the car is just this horrendous monstrosity by the end of it. Um, well, I'm glad you put the uh, link in the summary because I'm just going to go and watch that now. Yeah, yeah. Well, I did put. Yeah, yeah. You can see the you can see a diagram of the car itself, and I think it's a very good analogy. And many people identified design flaws in the cognitive aids in their workplace. I certainly saw some in the ones we've been using. Although others really kind of contrasted that with with some people uh, bringing up some really well designed, really nicely streamlined cognitive aids, such as the Vortex one on um, RSI. Mm. We then kind of moved to just reflecting on the practical advice that was in the paper. Um, and there are, again, some people who just sort of reflected on those pro, you know, pro tips on how to integrate it into your workplace. But I think you and I, Vic, as you mentioned before, kind of really like that this article forced ourselves to challenge our preconceptions. Uh, and I have a quote from here in it that you mentioned it kind of forced you to realize that you use checklists for a lot of preparation in avoiding crisis, like in an RSI checklist, but a lot less often when you're really stretched into the crisis. And I think that's probably uh, the same for me as well. Yes, and I think that's probably ironically, a failure of simulated practice. I think if I had lots of real-world feeling of using a cognitive aid when the chips were down, whether it was in simulation or not, I would do it more often. But in fact, that's not my experience. So I think I just don't go looking for it because it's not a familiar feeling. Mm. And I think that, that came up again you know, with the, the data on how, how infrequently we actually use a cognitive aid uh, despite us all saying we'd use one if it was actually provided. We just don't access it a lot of the time. Mm. Um, and then finally, I guess rolling in from that 
kind of observation was the fact that there was some debate regarding cognitive aid use in critical emergencies versus routine situations. And there seemed to be a little bit of tension here. I, I would have liked to explore it a bit more, um, but I wonder whether there was some relationship with the different roles that we play in hospital. And it seemed like uh, some emergency physicians such as myself and uh, Rowan, for example, were commenting on just the sheer breadth of presentations that they experience in emergency and they just can't have a cognitive aid for everything, but they also can't be fully prepped and, you know, completely slick in every possible crisis that comes through the department door. Uh, and so I felt like we were kind of sometimes wanting that cognitive aid that needs to be streamlined to actually be a micro textbook, which isn't really what Stuart's been arguing they should be used for. But I can also see that in anaesthetics, and I could be wrong because I'm certainly not an anaesthetist, uh, but my understanding is there's probably a more predictable set of frequent emergencies that are going to happen in an anaesthetic crisis that you can prepare for and be very well experienced in. Um, or at least that the final common pathways are more um, narrower in range. And I think that's the key, isn't it? And, and maybe it's the same for us as well. We're just insightless that maybe that overlay of simplicity just down to, you know, airway breathing circulation, that's the that's the critical element in making one of these things successful. Yeah, absolutely. And I think ABCDE is just the, the world's greatest kind of cognitive aid that's ever been designed. And I think we use it so frequently, forget, we forget that it's really a, a tool for helping us structure our critical emergencies. So that was kind of my summary of, of the majority of the discussion, but I'd have to say I really can't thank uh, Stuart Marshall enough because not only did he write this uh, beautiful editorial we've got in our PDF summary that we'll link to in this article, uh, he's been our expert commenter, he wrote the editorial itself, and then he also was just this ever-present force throughout the whole discussion this month. So I just really appreciate how he supported this entire project and very grateful for him. His expert commentary is really interesting because uh, unlike other journal club uh, months where we've asked somebody else to comment on an article, we actually asked him to comment on his own article. And so he took a really new approach uh, compared to our other experts in that uh, he kind of explored the case study we had with Catherine Namali and then he used it to guide us to further reading and resources and cognitive aids while also challenging some of our preconceptions. So it's very much well worth a read outside our podcast itself. Yes, and that's all I'd add is that it is worth a read and I would agree with you that Stu gave a fantastic contribution and in return we'll just give a shout out to his International Clinical Skills Conference in Italy in the third week of May. If anyone's interested, there's plenty of simulation at that conference, so uh, check it out online. All right, so that sounds like that's it for March, another great session that we had. And as we did last time, I'm going to go through a couple of articles that we've found recently in the literature uh, before we go on and think about what's ahead in April. So I picked out three articles uh, this month with a variety of different focuses and a variety of different styles about them that I thought might be interesting both in terms of their content but also for those of us who would like to think we were budding researchers and who have lessons to learn from methods as much as from the output or findings of these papers. And so the first one that I looked at was entitled The Most Useful Exercise of Medical School colon, simulated death can be successfully incorporated into undergraduate simulation. 
And this was an article in BMJ Stell, which is another one of the big four simulation journals. Uh, Stell stands for Simulation and Technology Enhanced Learning, and that's available on the BMJ uh, offshoot website. And this is from March 2017, and it's within their In Practice Reports section. And this is by Paul Gregg and co, uh, colleagues who are in the UK. So just to give you an idea about what they did, they had a discussion uh, and the introduction was about the pros and cons and the endless debate of should the mannequin die, what is the role of death in simulation? And I'm not going to rehash the debate here, but they gave a decent introduction into that. And so their study was set in an undergraduate program, in interprofessional program where they had a mixture of medical and nursing students. And they had a program which was designed to have three scenarios in each session. And how they described them were that the scenarios were designed, and I quote, to prepare students for emotionally challenging situations. They used mannequins as their patients. And for each session, as I said, they had three scenarios of increasing badness, I would say. The first scenario was always something in which the participants just had to do a good assessment and some investigations. The second scenario was the patient was pretty sick. And in the third scenario, the patient always died, no matter what the participants actually did. And as part of their evaluation, they essentially just asked the students what they thought. So they had 357 students who completed this evaluation, about half medical and half nursing. And unsurprisingly, most of them agreed that they said this session will help them develop as practitioners. And pretty much all of them strongly agreed that they would, and I quote, recommend the session to other students. They also had a free text opportunity from the respondents, and they did a thematic analysis of that, which really just gave feedback about the teaching style, the relevance to their clinical work, and the roles of the different health professionals. So in terms of their other findings, and I found this very interesting, there was in fact no feedback from any of the students directly related to the death of the patient. And so in the discussion, I thought the paper actually had quite an overreach in saying that it was a successful implementation of death into the program. And I think that's probably the lesson for us is that there's plenty we can claim from what we do. And the key, I think, is to be modest. Whereas for me, this was a little bit of an overreach for them to say that this was successfully implemented when we didn't really have either feedback from the students or other evidence of that. I think there were some other quite good take-home points in here. They described, I think, some good strategies for trying to ensure psychological safety if you are going to make that a endpoint for your simulation. And I think they thought a lot as a faculty about how that could be an explicit learning objective. What did you think, Ben? Um, look, I think... Uh the thing that I took home from this article was that students find value in being exposed to scenarios in the sim lab before they go through them in real life. Um, and I think it's still curious to me. And I think I know that you do a lot of undergraduate med, med student teaching, but sometimes I feel like the sim community is maybe a bit too obsessed with psychological safety and this whole exposure to death thing in the simulation lab. Um, Cause 
for the last two decades, maybe I wonder whether simulation educators have been trying to convince people who aren't used to coming joining us to, to join the fray. But there's this generation of students out there who've grown up in the sim lab and it's just how they're used to learning. And I kind of get the feeling that they just want to be challenged and aren't so worried about that psychological safety. Would that be a fair comment or am I overreaching? No, I think that's a very uh, good comment. And I think it does come down, I'm thinking back to the podcast we did with Jenny Rudolph, what do you think of as psychological safety? And I think you're right, there's a fine line between molly coddling people, but I think when you talk to Jenny, that's not what she means mm. by psychological safety. She does mean high challenge, but it does mean high support. And I think that's a grey zone. It's very hard to find that sweet spot in there. As you say, I think students do want to be challenged and I think they do realise that the stakes at this point are fairly low. Mm. Uh, but at the same time, I'm sometimes surprised by when we do that round the room at the end, so what did you take home with that? People come up with some things that make me realise that the psychological safety in its true sense is well-placed, but certainly it's no reason to make things soft. Mm. All right, so I might go on to our next paper, and this is now moving into the postgraduate learner area. Uh, it's another paper from the March 2017 issue of BMJ Stell, and this is by David Kessler et al., and the title of it is Screening Residents for Infant Lumbar Puncture Readiness with a Just-in-Time time Simulation-Based Assessment. And to explain this a little bit more, their aim was to say whether using a readiness assessment of the provider, the junior provider, before doing a lumbar puncture is associated with success when the lumbar puncture is actually done. And I think this is very well done study. There's no doubt about that. These are pros who've done it. And so the way they did it is actually worth looking at. And the background to this is that Look, procedural skills training is a traditional focus for SIM. Uh, lumbar punctures have been an area of interest for many people in trying to improve practice before we do it on patients. And I think it brought to light in the introduction this discussion about how supervisors often rely on trainees' self-described competence before they let them do a procedure. And I certainly am aware of that conversation. So are you happy to do the intubation? I don't know why we use this term, happy. <laughs> of course, I'm not happy. Yeah. Uh, I'm terrified, but I know I have to look brave and then my supervisor will let me do it. Mm. And that's probably not the best way for the patient perspective. So that was the sort of background to it. So this was part of the Inspire Network uh, group, and which I'll be talking about in the next project. But this is a group who essentially do multi-centre research in simulation, uh, very well credentialed. And they have a lumbar puncture work group, and they had already designed this readiness assessment for lumbar puncture. So they had a validated scale and essentially the provider would go and do this practice lumbar puncture in front of their supervisor who would say, yes, that's a score that's three or more, in which case you're allowed to do the LP, or it's less than three, sorry, you're not ready to do it yet. So this was pretty hardcore readiness assessment before people were allowed to do it. So in terms of how they did it, as we said, it was multi-institutional, prospective, uh, educational cohort study, 35 sites, and all the providers had the standardized LP curriculum before this just-in-time assessment. And the way they compared outcomes was to look at the before and 
after of this introduction of readiness assessment, but also to look at the groups that did the readiness assessment versus the groups that didn't, because for various reasons, some people didn't get around to doing that readiness assessment. And the outcomes they were using were the percentage of first pass CSF, pretty good outcome measure, I think, in this case, in the real LP. Uh, others were success on any attempt, total attempts, the use of local anaesthetic and early stylet removal, which the last two they thought were indicators of good practice. So again, using a multi-centre approach, you can get some good numbers. So they had 726 lumbar punctures that they were able to analyse in this way uh, that overall involved 1,722 trainees. And here's the headline. They found no difference in the first pass success rate between those who did the readiness assessment and those who didn't. For both groups, the first pass success rate was about 40%. So in their discussion, they say this is a pretty low number anyway. They quote a number of about 70% for experienced providers. And they offer a few reasons why they didn't find any difference. Uh, perhaps the one that struck me most was the idea that maybe the simulator just wasn't realistic enough and resulted in the supervisor overestimating the competence of the resident. And certainly having done those simulated LPs, they're actually pretty easy to do compared to a real patient. Mm -hmm. And so they kind of end on an up note because a couple of their secondary outcome measures were better. But for me, I actually think the triumph of this paper was that they published a negative study and said, you know, we really looked at this and it looks like it doesn't make a difference. Because what I sort of take away from this is sim training is really only part of the learning curve for doing an LP. Looks like for a little while yet, we're still going to be saying, are you happy to do the LP? <laughs> so what do you think, Ben? <laughs> Look, I just, wouldn't it just break your heart to do this beautiful study and have that outcome? Like the amount of effort was just phenomenal. And it is, I agree, it's just such a beautifully designed and rolled out study. But I, I agree, it's just so, I'm so relieved that it was published in um I think that the take-home message for me is that simulation isn't always the solution to every learning need, uh, although it can be a nice for function, a force function rather to, to promote a culture of supportive education. I think the other thing that I noticed that was interesting for me is that there wasn't any discussion about the person holding the infants, which in clinical experience for me is often the most crucial part of the procedure of all. Rather than my skill, it's often their ability to position that baby just right. So I reckon I'm going to make my fortune by designing some kind of mechanical bull blocking bronco like baby mannequin that we can do a trial on to practice for the hold of themselves because I reckon that'll help as well. But it was just such a beautiful paper. Yeah. Well, maybe you could design a readiness assessment test for the people holding the babies. Yeah, it's a skill in and of itself and it's really hard and it yeah. has real life real life risks as well with hypoxia and whatnot. You know, I think these guys are such pros. I suspect it didn't break their hearts per se. I think they're true researchers and if this is the mm. result, this is the result. But I'm with you. I'd be much more human about it. All right, so it's a nice lead into the last paper that I had picked, which is all about this INSPIRE network. So this paper is from February 2017 in Advances in Simulation, uh, the journal we featured in a few of last month's articles, another open access journal. And this is, of course, by our good friend Adam Cheng and our collaborators. And this describes essentially how to do multi-centre research involving simulation. So INSPIRE stands for 
the International Network for Simulation-Based Pediatric Innovation, Research and Education. And to use their quote, this paper is a guide to conducting quantitative multi-centre research with a focus on simulation. And that's exactly what it is. And one of my take-home messages from this was just how nicely presented a really large amount of information is in this paper. I'm not going to go into the detail of it because if you are a budding researcher, you have to read this yourself from beginning to end. But the way that they've structured it is essentially according to the phases of research and essentially going through what they've learned from their experience in conducting these multi-centre trials like the lumbar puncture one and their pearls of advice that they give for people who might be interested in doing some of the same things. So they go through the phases of planning the research, developing the project, actually executing the study, and then of interest to those of us who are podcasters, disseminating the results. And they've got a couple of really good tables in there. The table one shows the difference between some of the lessons in clinical trials versus the simulation type research they've done. And then table two is essentially a checklist of things for multi-centre researchers to look at as they prepare their program. So it's a really uh, in-depth, deep dive into quality research methods and highly recommended to anyone who's looking at delving into that. And I think also offers you up some of the names of some excellent people who you'd jump at the chance to work with if you're interested in doing this kind of research. So uh, yeah, a nice read, Ben. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm always excited to see an Adam Chang paper and I always feel like a little 10-year-old girl at a One Direction concert when I see him on the list of authors. Um, I don't think I was personally the right, I'm not at the right sort of level yet in terms of where I am in my career. And, and I think um, this is very much, a, as you mentioned, a, a researcher's article, but just I still admire it just for the enormous scope and the kind of the density of high quality pearl-like advice that you've mentioned um, regarding the next stage of what the sim community needs to do to produce good quality evidence regarding the efficacy of what we're doing as an educational tool. Really what I took home was that there's just so much in research rests on good anticipation and planning and getting that good pilot study, getting your learning objectives hammered out, finding the right local champions across your network and ironing out those kinks in communication before you go to roll out. That's right, just taking it to another level, not just planning a good study, but thinking about this at a programmatic level, a longitudinal approach to answering the important questions that we need to answer. And of course, it was extremely good because in their dissemination pearls, they did mention Simulcast saying that it was really important to engage with people like us to help disseminate these <laughs> research findings. It was so a little bit exciting. It was always going to make its way onto our podcast today, wasn't it? <laughs> All right, Ben, so you better tell us what's coming in April. What can we discuss on the blog? Yeah, so look, this is going to be interesting because I'm trying something new again. Um, I've had a little bit of feedback so far that sometimes people feel a little bit intimidated to comment on the Journal Club because of the caliber of some of the comments and, and kind of the smart, fancy people who are talking. Um, and so next month we're going to go right back to the beginning and look at probably one of the most influential simulation educational papers of all time, which is uh, there's no such thing as non-judgmental debriefing, a theory and method for debriefing with good judgment. And the primary author being Jenny Rudolph, uh, which is published 
now 11 years ago in simulation in healthcare in spring 2006. And we've got a lovely case study about a bright-eyed sim fellow who's making some early missteps with his debriefing. And I'm really hoping that we get some comments from new simulation educators and sim fellows out there who are getting to maybe experience this paper for the first time. So please, if you have any new fellows that you're training up and you're trying to get them more into reading educational research and articles, uh, please encourage them to jump on and comment next month for the first time. I'll be really interested as well though to hear from uh, our more senior educators who've known about this paper for a long period of time and it being now 11 years I think a lot has changed uh, and advocacy and inquiry maybe isn't the be-all and end-all of simulation education like it used to be. Uh, so I think it's a really exciting opportunity to reflect on how far we've come uh, and what's helped us along the way. And then lastly, uh, Adam, Adam Cheng is going to be our expert commenter for the month. So I'm very much fangirling right now. Looking forward to that. Yes, I, th I agree with you. 11 years, hey, that's quite a while. And I agree the thinking around that has uh, waxed and waned, but it remains a great paper, at least in my book. And mm. I'll be interested to see the comments. And it will be great to have Adam's perspective because, of course, as we know, he now leads a fabulous group of people on the Debrief to Learn website, uh, blog and podcast, as well as a whole range of resources there. So I think he's become another leading figure in the world of debriefing and eminently qualified to comment uh, next month. So we'll look forward to that, Ben. Uh, while we're just talking little updates, just a reminder, the abstracts closed for the Australasian Simulation Congress at the end of August. But a reminder that the registrations will be opening sometime soon. And being on the organising committee, I am privy to some of the excellent things that will be happening there. So Sydney, Australasian Simulation Congress, check it out. So Ben, it's been lovely to talk to you again this month. Plenty of interesting reading in the simulation world. And uh, we'll look forward to seeing you next month. Yeah, thanks a lot.